This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. A conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the Center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the world and the consequences of this global event will have long lasting effects. The loss of life and the fear caused by the pandemic disrupted governments around the world. As a result, governments today are facing very serious, seemingly intractable public management issues in the aftermath of this pandemic that go to the core of effective governance and leadership, testing the very form, structure, and capacity required to meet these problems head on. In fall-winter 2020, the IBM Center for the Business of Government initiated a challenge grant competition, soliciting essays from academics and practitioners describing how government can best transform the way it works, operates, and delivers services to the public, given the impact of this pandemic. Along with the continued carnage left in its wake, this pandemic most assuredly revealed significant vulnerabilities, exposing points of serious weakness in global, regional, and local supply chains, and networks impacting all sectors of the economy, including the government. Why is the global supply chain so vulnerable? What is supply chain immunity? And how can we enhance national supply chain immunity? I will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Rob Hanfield, contributor to the IBM Center special report, COVID-19 and its impact, seven essays on reframing government management and operations. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, Rob, I'd like to explore the essay you did for the IBM Center Special Report, COVID-19 and its impact. And your essay is Achieving Supply Chain Immunity, Planning, Preparation, and Coordination in National Emergency Response. But first, perhaps you could provide us with some context. Rob, what is the supply chain? And could you highlight the key players within a supply chain? Well, that's, that's a great question. And I don't think a lot of people even knew a lot about what a supply chain is before, uh, before COVID. Um, a supply chain really is a, a series of connected enterprises that exchange uh, materials. Um, you know, they exchange information. Uh, they, there are financial flows between them. And then there are also what I would call relational flows between them. So it is really a, a, a value creating system of multiple enterprise connected. Uh, Within the United States, um, a lot of the products that were used uh, in the healthcare response 
had supply chains that extended outside of the country in, in many of the materials like PPE and ventilators and so forth uh, had supply chains that extended all the way to China. So many of the materials that we required for this response were outside the span of control of the United States. So Rob, that, that's a nice segue into my next question around the national emergency response paradigm that we use. What is the national emergency response framework that you reference and to what extent does it rely on supply chains? Well, the answer is, is, uh, uh, is clear. It, it completely relies on external supply chains. Um, most of what the government does and the Department of Defense does is, is what's called acquisition. So they, they buy things from external third parties. And uh, in the last few years, an increasing amount of the critical materials required for government response uh, within the National Emergency Response Framework uh, has been outsourced to uh, low-cost countries, places like China, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, etc. And uh, this is this is significant because what happened during COVID, the National Emergency Response Framework, uh, you know, suggests that there there should be uh, reliance on these external sources, or alternatively, uh, there should be some buffer inventories held of uh, material. Uh, so that we're not completely reliant, but at least we have a stockpile. And, and most of that stockpile exists within what we call the strategic national stockpile, which is, which is actually a division of ASPR. Uh, what happened, however, in this case with the SNS is that the stockpile of material that they required for the pandemic response, including um, masks, in, including ventilators, including rubber gloves, uh, hadn't been replenished since the last pandemic, the H1N1, uh, which was almost 10 years ago. So a lot of the material in that stockpile was expired. It literally, you try to put on a mask and the rubber band would snap. It was so old uh, and, and the material could not be used, was no longer effective. So th this created a, a huge problem for this national emergency response because they didn't have a stockpile they were relying on material that was being sourced from China. And uh, coincidentally, the uh, epicenter of the uh, COVID pandemic, which was Wuhan, China, also happened to be the epicenter for the production of PPE in the world. So it, it was a, a perfect storm, if you will. We were unable to get PPE uh, and, and critical material uh, because our stockpile was expired. And uh, the place that was producing all this stuff was also uh, shut down because of the, uh, of, uh, of the virus. So it, was, it really was a terrible situation. From your research, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the global supply chain? Well, th this, is, this uh, COVID response, I think, has really raised an issue of increasing uh, awareness of our exposure to uh, these global supply chains uh, where we, we really don't uh, own the, um, the, the materials that are required for this response. And, and this became clear, you know, during an interview with the CEO of 3M. He was uh, interviewed uh, by Congress and was asked, well, what percentage of your N95 masks are produced in the United States? And his response was, well, about 35%. Well, well that doesn't sound too bad. 
Um, but what he did not state was that all of the raw materials, the rubber bands, the, 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 the actual spun down material, the, the, the nose bridges, were all produced overseas. So the, it was only the final assembly that was in packaging that was done here in the United States. And, and what this ex, uh, really exposed this, this event and others was that our, our federal uh, response uh, mechanism doesn't really understand who is in these critical supply chains. Uh, we don't have very good visibility into uh, you know, the, the, the demand requirements. And, and not, this isn't just for PPE and masks, uh, but this really involves any kind of, of material that's required in, a, in an emergency. And, and there often isn't a, a lot of, well, there's very poor communication, in fact, between multiple agencies. And you have multiple agencies that need to be responsive. You have FEMA, you have DHS, you have DLA, you have CDC. And, and there was really a lot of confused communication regarding standards. Uh, you know, NIOSH was involved uh, regarding distribution of materials. And, and as a result, there really wasn't a lot of acquisition and planning capability, which resulted in a very poorly executed response uh, to, this, to this COVID uh, crisis. And, and I think what we're calling for here in my paper, what I believe is we need to do better. We, we really need to develop a more effective national uh, response system. And, and this is based on uh, my work. I was involved in the Joint Acquisition Task Force uh, which was trying to find sources of PPE for FEMA and the federal government, working with the U.S. Air Force and a number of other players. And, and during the conversations we had with, with FEMA and other agencies, it, it really exposed their, I hate to use this word, but naivete in terms of where these supply chains were and, and where this material was, was coming from. And uh, that resulted in this sort of Hunger Games scenario where everyone was, was competing with one another over decision rights and, and ownership of issues. And uh, at, at some point, I think the federal government also kicked it out to the states and said, well, states, now you're, you're in charge of finding your own uh, material in response. One of the things I was also involved in was we interviewed every chief procurement officer in every state in the country. And we collected all of these stories of how they just scrambled to find PPE. They weren't able to get it. Um, they had never, some of them had never bought anything outside of their state. Uh, they were relying on these third party distributors like, like Cardinal Health or, uh, or McKesson. And, and these guys were running out of uh, material as well. And, and so all of a sudden now they were having to pay upfront, uh, cash upfront to suppliers in China that they had never worked before and, and there was counterfeiting going on. There was scam artists. Uh, it, was, it was really a chaotic situation. And, and that's where we came up with this idea for, uh, you know, a much more effective planning response. We call it supply chain immunity. Rob, you mentioned supply chain immunity. What does it mean? And how can this concept become a reality in an increasingly unpredictable and uncertain world? Well, the, the idea of supply chain immunity came about, um, you know, actually, we, we, we thought the, the immunity concept associated with, with the virus was a perfect metaphor. Because uh, if you think about immunity, what is it? it? It's really an antibody that is developed in your body. 
And uh, the antibody recognizes that there's an intruder, that there's a threat to their, to their health system, and they fight it. In, in most cases, uh, you know, people will get sick for a while. They, they won't feel well as, as the antibodies kick in and, and, and fight the virus. And your entire body is, is focused on fighting this virus. And then after a while, you feel better. And in, in, in most cases, at least, you, you, uh, you get out of it and, and you're okay. And so this idea of, of how do we create supply chain immunity? How do we create a system that can deal with various types of threats in an increasingly unpredictable and uncertain world? And by threats, we mean not just things like pandemics, but uh, cyber terrorism or, or real terrorism or, or uh, you know, crazy weather like we had in, in Texas, uh, you know, or, or, or hurricanes. How do we deal with these kinds of uh, threats to our, our national security. And what we thought was there were really four, uh, four key attributes that we believed are really important to create an immune national supply chain system. And uh, let, let me kind of go through each of these, and I think it's, it'll, it'll be helpful to, to talk about them. Uh, the first is, is flexibility, and a key component in a future supply chain response is, is the ability to deal with various types of situations that, that might occur. And, and the only way that's gonna happen is if you have a, uh, a, a sort of a playbook. A, a playbook is just like, you know, something that a coach uh, uses in, uh, you know, like for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know, they have a playbook and, and they vary that playbook based on the situation and what happens. But there's, there's actually a plan in place. And, and this playbook determines who will be on the team. Uh, you'll need, as I said before, SNS, ASPR, DHS, you know, BARDA, CDC, all, all of the alphabet. And uh, you'll get all the, the right people. And that team should get early on clarity on what, are the, what is it, the problem that we're facing? And what, how do we work together to address this problem? And it, and it sets a cadence of meetings and it sets expectations on what we're going to do. So, so that, that is really important to have that playbook that enables you to be flexible to these different kinds of situations that might arise. The second component is, is what I call traceability or, or transparency. And, and this is really about you know, managing, um, managing uh, your assets. And, and the key uh, phrase here is you can't manage what you can't see. So, so during the pandemic, the national stockpile really had no idea of, of uh, what materials they had in their warehouses or distribution centers. They didn't know what the expiration dates were on there. Um, you know, they didn't have a tracking system. So we need to be able to see, you know, what material we have available and what assets we have available. And we also need a way to effectively communicate between different parties, uh, you know, through digital assets, through data, and, and understanding, you know, what contracts also uh, are in place that, that will allow us uh, to source what we need. And, and those contracts ideally should have uh, some kind of clauses that, that require, uh, you know, priority uh, given a, an emergency for the federal government and there's no reason why that shouldn't be, be made available. And this transparency should be in real time. Uh, we, we have technologies today that clearly will enable this, this real-time visibility. 
The, the third component is what I'll call responsiveness. Um, this, this, this is uh, what we saw during the pandemic, again, was real lags and gaps in decision-making. And um, you know, it, it wasn't just a bureaucratic response. It was um, really an inability to, to really understand who was in charge. So, so that playbook should identify you know, who is the leadership team and who's calling the shots. And it should also bring in the right experts that have the requisite knowledge and experience and, and external market intelligence. And, and so what we're advocating is you really need a, a full-time team of people to understand uh, you know, what's happening out there in the world and, and have a radar on potential threats that are out there and the ability to quickly bring together that team uh, and to debrief them and say, here's what's going on we better get ahead of this. We better start to respond. Again, if we look back at what happened with the pandemic, you know, the folks in the national stockpile, uh, to their credit, they knew that there was gonna be a problem and they knew this as early as January. And they were getting signals from their distributors that there was not going to be enough PPE available to re respond to this crisis. They went to uh, the, the head of the CDC, they went to uh, Washington, and, and they, they expressed this concern. Well, the problem is the people in charge were, were clinicians, they were epidemiologists, uh, brilliant people who don't understand what a supply chain is and how it operates. And so, you know, it was, it was really all for naught, and, and they were unable to act quickly. And, and that's one of the things in a, in a crisis you have to act quickly, you have to be responsive. Time is absolutely of the essence. So, so we need leadership and we need the right people to get early warning and to act quickly when these things happen. The fourth and final component of, of supply chain immunity is what I call global independence. And um, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk right now on the Hill, uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, and, and others are talking about building a uh, a national manufacturing guard and uh, insourcing and, and bringing back all of these manufacturing assets back to the United States. Uh, that's all well and good, but it, again, it, it's very naive. Uh, many of these industries are gone. You know, the electronic sector is not coming back. Uh, a lot of the low-cost uh, healthcare supplies are not coming back. They're, they're, they're produced in low-cost countries. And there's a reason for that. I mean, these countries are able to produce these materials at a very low cost, much more efficiently. And um, it's, not, it's not necessarily something that the United States would do well. So, so we have to be a little more realistic to say, well, if we can't bring all this manufacturing back, then, then let's create a, a domestic network of trusted suppliers uh, and of trusted people throughout the global supply chains that we can work with and that uh, we can get early warning to these risks and that we can move quickly, you know, through our contracts and through, through our relationships uh, to build a more flexible and collaborative supply chain through, through a, a co-determined future relationship with, with uh, the U.S. government. And I think a lot of suppliers would gladly work with the U.S. government and be part of that U.S.-centric network and get access to our markets. So, so I think those are the four components that I, I talk about in the paper. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that we have started having some conversations 
with uh, a couple of offices, Senator Peter's office, Senator Kuhn's office, but these are in the very early stages. I know there's a lot of bills floating out about this uh, idea right now, but it's still at a very early stage, I believe. What is supply chain immunity? We will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. My guest today is Dr. Robert Hanfield. So Rob, as you point out, bringing home some of the uh, manufacturing capability, it won't happen in the short term. But, um, you know, you raise the point that independence is a key attribute for creating supply chain immunity. Can you tell us what needs to happen in order to foster a supply chain that is both globally engaged, but also relatively independent of global shocks to the system? Well, this is an excellent point right now. And I think, um, I think, I think the country is, is sort of going through a self-examination of why can't we, you know, bring uh, N95 manufacturing back to the U.S.? You know, why can't we bring ventilator production? And I actually interviewed, you know, General Motors, you know, who, who actually did just that. They started producing ventilators. Now we've got, you know, boatloads of ventilators sitting in inventory. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the question, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, it raises an important point. So uh, if the U.S. says, okay, we want to bring domestic manufacturing of these critical components back to the United States. Um, well, who's going to fund that for one thing? Um, and I can tell you right now, it's, there's a good likelihood that um, the cost of that PPE and equipment and masks is going to be much higher than what we're paying for it right now because it's being produced in a low cost country where, where labor is very low. So will CMS be willing to make up that difference when they start paying for, um, you know, Medicare and, and, and Medicaid, uh, you know, bills that come in from hospitals? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> right? So it's, it's unlikely that we're really going to foot the bill for uh, this, this reshoring of a uh, wave of reshoring that, that people are talking about. 
There is, however, another uh, potential solution, and this is where I think it gets interesting. Um, I think what we will see is I think we're going to start to see, uh, you know, regional sourcing. And, and by that, I mean, I think the world will start to move to sort of these, these uh, uh, global uh, economic regions. And, and certainly, you know, within North America, we have uh, uh, Mexico has, has relatively low-cost labor. Uh, Canada has relatively low-cost natural resources. And in state, the United States has very low-cost uh, capital resources. So, so I think, you know, there's, there's really a, a regional uh, argument that can be made that if those three countries come together, we could probably become much more self-reliant. And we might see the same thing happen in, in Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, Middle East and Africa, and uh, in China and Southeast Asia. So, so I think we may start to see these, these regional ecosystems start to play out. Um, but again, that's going to require some, you know, some significant negotiation and, and uh, government uh, involvement to, to uh, allow those, those trade flows to, to begin to occur. So, Rob, the, the next quality you mentioned is the value of traceability or visibility, the ability to see your products along the supply chain. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this looks like in practice? How do we get there? And what technology may help us get there? So, so traceability and visibility begins with um, what I would call sort of a, a, uh, a solid um, master data database. So, so you need to have good data. You need to have quality data, and there needs to be a system of data governance to track all this stuff. Um, uh, having, I've done some work with GSA, and, and unfortunately, the federal government uh, is known for the, the horrific uh, condition of most of their data, uh, which, which, is, uh, which is really bad. I mean, to, to give you an idea, you know, at, at GSA one time we were, uh, we were working with spend data, and we noticed that uh, there was one particular item, category of items that was being sourced a lot, and uh, the category, co- and it was soybeans. And, and we said, well, why the heck are we buying so many soybeans? And, and we looked, and the, the category code for soybeans was 0000. So, so what you know, buyers were doing is they didn't want to fill it out, so they were just punching in four numbers. <laughs> And, and, and filling up the, the database with all this, this you know, lousy data. So, so we need to get a good system of data governance, first of all. And I think we also need to automate uh, the capture of this data. And, and to give you an idea, you know, uh, we interviewed someone at the uh, Strategic National Stockpile who said that when they were receiving PPE, they literally would have uh, the guys working in the warehouse take a picture of the pallet on their uh, cell phones and load that up to the database. So it was, it, it was, it was really sort of uh, rudimentary types of, of data tracking. So I, I think we'll need uh, to use barcodes and QR codes. And, and again, this is standard technology. This is old technology. It's not that expensive. Once you have this data, then you need to be able to organize it uh, and track it in real time. And one of the technologies we hear a lot about is what's called a uh, control tower. And a control tower uh, is basically a, uh, a dashboard that shows the current status of material in the system, uh, where it is, how it's being consumed, where it's being shipped. And it's giving you an update on all of this in real time. 
So, um, so I think it's, it's possible for the government, even if they don't physically own all of this material, uh, they can require that all of their uh, contractors and all of the hospitals also provide access to uh, the data so that the government can know where all this stuff is and, and be able to move it around if they need to, to hotspots, um, you know, to, to be able to better plan to, to be able to better res, uh, respond to what's happening. And, and again, this is not expensive technology. Um, I wrote a book called The Living Supply Chain that talks about a, a company, Pulse, that developed a, a real-time control uh, tower. And they, they had 29 factories all over the world, and they could see every single bit of inventory in real time and know where it was. And, and this is what I think we have to be thinking about is, is this data visibility and, and material visibility. And it's equivalent to, you know, driving your car down the street with no speedometer or no gas tank or, or, or no GPS, right? You, you don't know where you're going. You don't know how fast you're going. And you don't know if you're going to be running out of gas anytime soon. So, so we need this data to be able to operate these, these uh, global supply chains and, and to be able to respond uh, and, and plan and, and take action on what's happening around us. So how critical, Rob, is responsiveness in building supply chain immunity? And what are some of the ways to realize this quality? Well, well responsiveness is, is again, uh, you know, is, is, is the idea that time is of the essence. We have to act quickly. So, so I think what we have to do is, is we need to have, first of all, that, that uh, transparency. So we have to have information on inventory, material capacity, et cetera. Um, but we also need to have you know, some, uh, some guidelines uh, so that we, ha- we know how to, how to do different things and how to do it equitably. And, and I think this is also where we saw some flaws in the response is certain states were getting more PPE than others. Uh, the allocation of material to states uh, wasn't always fair. So, so I think we have to establish up front, well, what are some of the guidelines that we're going to use to equitably respond to this? And, um, and, and we also need to have a national response team with, uh, you know, quite, quite honestly, some, some professionals. You know, I think what they need is I think they need more uh, supply chain planners uh, that are on the front lines. And uh, these are folks that they, they know how to deal with emergencies. Uh, they know how to deal with, with uh, problems that come up with bad weather, with, 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 with issues, and, and they're able to plan around them. And, uh, you know, the Defense Department has people that do this all the time. It's, it's part of their regular job is the ability to, to quickly make decisions and to quickly recover, you know, when things start to go wrong. And, uh, you know, we need, we need a team that can manage a crisis that can quickly act uh, based on new intelligence on what's happening around them. And, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, team just was not in place. And uh, I, I think it needs to be a full-time team. Even though we're not going to use them all the time, they can be involved in the market intelligence, market research, uh, response planning. And uh, we just need to invest in those, those kinds of people. And, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be a huge investment, but I think it's, it's definitely something that we need to be thinking about. More on COVID-19 and its impact on government management and operations when this special edition of the Business of the Government Hour returns. 
This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Governments must integrate comprehensive risk management into procurement systems, policies, and practices. I will explore this topic and much more with Zach Hutink, contributor to the IBM Center Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. So, Zach, I was wondering, how does Enterprise Risk Management, ERM, and related approaches like Mission Assurance factor in to an agency's ability to manage risk comprehensively? So when we're thinking about resilience, what we're really thinking about or what a lot of individuals think about in particular is resilience against those high profile adverse events, a pandemic disease, an extreme weather event, an act of terrorism or workplace violence, a catastrophic cyber intrusion, something like solar winds, for example. We're really thinking about these big consequential events which, as you can imagine, affect an agency in and of itself, its entirety, as opposed to just one component or another component, and really affects society and government as a whole. An approach like enterprise risk management is it creates a governance structure and a process through which an agency, maybe perhaps even government as a whole, can take a broad view of risk, different sources of risk, risk of damage to lives and property, or risk of undermining mission accomplishment or accomplishment of strategic objectives from these series of natural hazards and threats. So it, it, it opens the eyes of the agency and of the government itself to take a big picture view of risk. There is a lot going on in the world. Uh, the sources of risk are multiplying. They're consequential. They come from a, a variety of sources. And particularly, uh, the, the agency in its entirety really has kind of common cross-cutting exposure to some of these hazards and threats and the risks that they create, risks of damage to lives and property, risks of undermining mission accomplishment. So we need to, in a sense, match a comprehensive approach to managing risk and in effect promoting resilience through identifying and managing risk. We need to match the comprehensive nature of the threat with a comprehensive approach to managing and responding to it. Zach, what is the other critical action you recommend that agencies can do to identify and analyze risk And how important is it to rank risks by combining likelihood and consequences? Yeah, so this gets into kind of an interesting aspect of human psychology. On the one hand, what we might think of as probability neglect, and on the other hand, what we might think of as consequence neglect. Now, as it turns out, of course, people were right to be concerned about the coronavirus. Interestingly, though, if you look back at some of the reporting, I was actually reading a Bloomberg article, I think, from like January or early February 2020, which laid out this idea of probability neglect, which I think was a a term originated by a Biden administration advisor named Cass Sunstein, sort of a famous lawyer, developed the idea of nudging with the Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thaler. At any rate, what this means is that we, we tend to inflate the likelihood with which something bad will happen because the consequences of it happening are bad. Consequence neglect, on the other hand, means that we're really sort of dwelling on the fact that the probability or the likelihood is low, so we ought not really focus on it that much, even if it occurs and invites a lot of consequences. 
Now, it's important when we're doing this to avoid both, I think, probability neglect on the one hand and consequence neglect on the other hand, because we don't just care about probability. We care about probability times the consequence of something happening. Something can be a very low probability event, a mass pandemic, for example, but can, as we've seen, have huge and catastrophic consequences. So when agencies are thinking about or have inventoried the various hazards and threats to the agency, to their operations, to their procurement function, they want to think about what is the likelihood of this hazard or threat materializing and what are the consequences of it to the agency, to the procurement function and to our ability to accomplish our goals and objectives and achieve our mission. And it's important to think about those things in tandem, likelihood and consequences. Yeah, as a follow-up, Zach, what is risk appetite and how does it factor into how agencies manage their risk? Yeah, so we can think of risk appetite as just broadly how much risk is an agency willing to assume to take on to deal with? How much risk is it comfortable with when it's thinking through accomplishing its strategic goals and objectives? How much uncertainty is it willing to tolerate, for example? That's it's risk appetite. And this can actually be codified through what's called a risk appetite statement, where agencies will lay out risks from various hazards and threats, risks of damage to lives and property from a natural hazard, for example, or from a man-made hazard like a mass casualty terrorist attack. And they'll rank, how much can we tolerate that risk based on the likelihood and the consequences? Is this a risk for which we have high tolerance? Is this a risk for which we have, say, medium tolerance? Or is this a risk for which we have low tolerance. Why is that important? If we're able to think through and prioritize risk, accounting for likelihood, accounting for consequences, and accounting for risk tolerance, the agency then can use the resources, the limited resources it has at its disposal to treat the risks that it thinks are most important. We can't entirely eliminate every risk in our personal lives or whether in the business of government. And moreover, the government agency doesn't have resources to deal with all of the hazards and threats and the risks they may create. It has to prioritize, and it can most effectively do so if it thinks through probability and consequence and compares that, bumps that up against what is its risk tolerance. It really helps the agency understand how it can use the limited resources at its disposal to address the risks that are most important, that are most critical or highest priority. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. My guest today is Dr. Robert Hanfield. Rob, why is it important to seek market intelligence on supply risks from multiple sources? Um, well, I, I think, you know, what happens is uh, if you rely on a single source, uh, you can have a problem. So a great example is um, most of the world's rubber gloves come from a single supplier in, uh, I believe it's either Indonesia or Vietnam. Uh, Top Glove, I think it is. Well, Top Glove uh, had a huge um, uh, COVID incident where uh, they had a, a massive amount of outbreaks, and so they had to basically shut down uh, their facilities. Well, overnight, the supply of uh, you know latex nitride gloves was shut down, and there, you started to see shortages popping up all over the world. So it is important to have some redundancy in our supply base, to, to have more than one source. And if we have a, a majority, if we only rely on one uh, particular source, uh, we, we may not uh, be getting the best, uh, the best response. And, and I think the federal government sometimes, um, you know, does rely too much on a single source. Uh, and uh, we, we need to be thinking more about diversifying our, our suppliers. I think it, the second part of that, which I'll add to is, we need to look beyond the what I call tier one suppliers. Tier one is your immediate supplier, but we also have to look at our tier two suppliers. And uh, tier two is our supplier's supplier. Okay, so it's the, it's the supplier who provides raw material to our supplier who then provides material to us. And that's important because very often you may be using uh, a diverse set of suppliers but they all have the same common supplier, you know, at tier two. And, and we saw this with the Japanese tsunami where there were multiple suppliers, you know, feeding uh, inputs to General Motors and Ford and, and all the other automotive manufacturers, but they were all reliant on this same uh, chip manufacturer in Japan that was shut down because of the tsunami. And they were all operating on a just-in-time basis. So all of a sudden, the global supply of, of the semiconductor chips was shut down. And all of a sudden, you had Ford and GM. Every factory in the world was shut down or potentially shut down because of this uh, lack of supply. And interestingly enough, we saw the same thing, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, where uh, the chip manufacturers, the lead times have gone up. There isn't enough supply. And lo and behold, Ford and GM are shutting down their facilities again uh, because they don't have enough chips. So, so, so this is something we see in the private sector, and I think it also happens in the, um, in, in certainly in the public sector as well. What can organizations do to ensure that its crisis response teams stay current on governmental and regulatory requirements? Well, you know, I, I think there's several things that can be done. Um, and, and we recently had a paper in the Harvard Business Review that, that talked about this idea of preparedness of poor supply chain immunity is, is I think you have to create uh, work along these two dimensions of uh, sort of responsiveness and awareness. Uh, so, so I think there needs to be uh, a federal team uh, that is a, a national uh, uh, supply market research uh, or intelligence team that, that needs to be assembled 
and uh, they need to be assembled by category of critical categories that we need for uh, defense and healthcare response. And, and they need to just be abreast of what's happening in these global markets. You know, what are the mergers? What are the acquisitions? Uh, what's happening in terms of supply? What's happening in terms of uh, the changes in the environment? And, and having this is, is equivalent to, you know, what an analyst for the CIA does is, is they're constantly monitoring, they're in charge of a domain of knowledge uh, that's, that's, uh, that's bounded and, and they, they sit all day and they do research and they write reports and they, they, they provide risk triggers. And uh, this, is, this is something that I think is absolutely critical is we need to have this uh, market intelligence on what's happening there. Um, uh, and, and then the second piece is I think that information needs to be fed into a global response team. And, and that global response team should, should be able to look out there and say, okay, what kinds of threats uh, are, 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 is our intelligence network telling us maybe on the horizon? Maybe there's a, you know, a, a hurricane out in the Gulf of Mexico, or maybe we're seeing some, some ter- cyber terrorism activity and, and people are trying to hack into uh, you know, some of our, some of our, our key servers. And, and for each one of these, there should be a plan. And, and the problem is at any given time, there may be you know, 10 or 12 different threats out there. And this is something that the national stockpile people told us. They said, you know, we never, a pandemic was only one of 10 or 12 potential threats that are out there. And we didn't have enough funding to cover all of those bets. So we covered maybe half of them, maybe six or eight of them. So, so you know, if we really want to be sure, we're going to need to uh, put in more funding and, and, and uh, place more bets on, on possible threats that might occur. And the problem, of course, is no one is ever rewarded, you know, for putting a bet on something that might occur, which doesn't occur. And you're going to say, well, that's, that's, a waste, that's a waste of federal funds. But boy, think of, you know, think of what this pandemic has done. You know, it's, it's global governments have lost 10 to $12 trillion in GDP. I mean, what's placing a bet of $5 billion, you know, on, on uh, this kind of a national response center uh, over 10 years? Is that worth it? In, in my book, it is. And, and so I think we need to be thinking that way. What are supply risk tools? Perhaps you can, you know, it's back on your Harvard Business Review article where you talk about them. And, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about them and why is it important to deploy them to identify, manage, monitor, and mitigate risk supplies that could impact your operations? And perhaps you could kind of illustrate what they are. A- absolutely. And I've, I've, um, I've seen some of these uh, risk tools at work um, you know, the first step, even before you uh, invest in risk uh, technology, is is to map out your supply chain. Like I said earlier, figure out who are your key suppliers and then who are your key supplier suppliers. So, armed with that information, you can begin to invest in what are called these supply chain risk tools. And, and one of the most prominent uh, that's out there is a tool called Resilink. Um, there, there's also others called uh, uh, risk metrics. Uh, um, you know, DHL has has one as well. But, but essentially, what uh, what these risk tools are is they will take your list of suppliers in their geographic location, and they will ma- they will put them on a map of the world. Uh, and then these uh, these risk platforms will then use machine based learning. Uh, they'll scan news feeds. They'll scan Twitter data. 
And they will identify, you know, all of the events that are going on in the world and put them on this, this global map. If any of those events uh, fall within a certain circumference, maybe it's five or 10 miles of your uh, suppliers that you've given them, you will get a warning. You'll get an early warning that, hey, there may be something going on here. You should probably contact your supplier or talk to them or, you know, take measures. Again, it's that early warning. So it doesn't, they don't tell you what to do, but they do tell you if you have uh, an event uh, that's going on in some part of the world, maybe it's a, it could be a political event, it could be a terrorist event, it could be weather, it could be, uh, you know, an earthquake, uh, or it could be a pandemic like, like this one. And, early, and if, if more people had known what was going on in Wuhan, they could have acted earlier. Um, again, a great example, you know, this company Flex had early warning that there was a problem in, uh, in Wuhan with, with, uh, with the government shutting, shutting things down and, and, and the markets were shutting down. So very early on, they realized there was going to be a problem. And, and they were alerted to this by, uh, I think they were using WestLink at the time. And they, they made some phone calls and they learned very quickly, yep, this is indeed what's happening. So they got in touch with suppliers. They started getting more PPE. They started moving production around. So they, they could take some of these early measures uh, to avert what could have been a, a potential, you know, complete shutdown of their supply chain and, uh, and were able to convert it into a, a relatively minor issue uh, based on that information. Rob, what are the policy and regulatory implications of building supply chain immunity? Well, I, I think there's several, several areas. The first is around, uh, you know, identification of funds to, to create a, a national response center, um, you know, which is, is going to be uh, staffed by, you know, a director. Uh, there would be conditions under which that center would, uh, uh, you know, begin to be formalized and, and would then take priority over other agencies and would have immediately members of those agencies uh, be, you know, uh, congregate and, and uh, be subservient to uh, this, this emergency center. And that's sort of emergency management 101. That, that's that's a, a coordinated response that's important. There should also be, I think, um, some discussion around, um, you know, policies of uh, jurisdiction over states versus the federal government in a, in a federal emergency. That jurisdiction was really hazy under these conditions in the past year, and we saw that fall apart. So I, I think we need to really rethink you know, will, will the states uh, therefore be in an emergency? Some of this, like this, will they? Uh, will will that there be a federal response, or will there be a state response, and how will that be coordinated? And who's going to be in charge of that? Um, a third piece, I think, has to do not just with the funding of this center, but um, you know, the the requirements around uh, manufacturing, and, and I think we're we're seeing this right now. A lot of debate. In the next year, I believe, we'll focus on, uh, you know, will the federal government have a Buy American uh, mandate, um, you know, in, in a lot of their, their upcoming contracts. Um, I also think there's a need to really, you know, rethink the FAR. I think, I think there are the federal acquisition regulations. I think the FAR is uh, way too complex. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's become an encumbrance. It's become almost dysfunctional in terms of 
uh, our ability to, to really adopt modern sourcing and supply chain practices. So I think that needs to be uh, really rewritten, if you will, uh, to accommodate the realities of what we're seeing with, with our global supply chains. And, and this idea of buying American is, is a wonderful idea. Uh, you know, it's, it's full of patriotism and, and vim and vigor, but uh, again, the reality is, is unlikely that we're gonna be able to do this in the short term. And therefore, I think there are some longer term implications of how are we gonna develop local manufacturers and who will fund that? Uh, will there be contractual requirements uh, going along with, with these issues? These are all some really interesting longer term issues. And we're doing a, uh, a webinar on this uh, for the Contract Management Association titled, The American Supply Chains Have No Clothes. You know, so we don't, we don't, have, we don't have the ability to produce a lot of the stuff that we, we think we want to produce. So, so how do we handle that situation? Uh, interesting issues ahead, for sure, Michael. So, Rob, in all our conversation, you, you described the attributes of, that are key to achieving supply chain immunity. But I was wondering, in getting there, technology must play a role. So what emerging technologies can help organizations realize this concept of supply chain immunity? So I, I think one of, the, one of the technologies that is, really holds the most promise is, is what I'll call um, uh, you know, computing at the edge, right? It's, it's the, the smart technologies that are embedded in, in objects, in, in trucks, in warehouses, in, in, in pallets, in, in uh, thermometers, et cetera. And, and I think as we start to digitize everything around us, um, all of this data will be, will be collected into middleware systems that then will sort of interact. And, uh, you know, you'll have, you'll have uh, vehicles and warehouses and distribution systems all communicating with one another and, and optimizing the flow of, of these materials uh, across the U.S. I think at some point we may have complete automation where, uh, you know, like just like in an Uber system, if you want to deliver a package, you go on your phone and somebody shows up and picks it up and it gets there through a, through a series of interconnected uh, logistical systems. So I think this, this idea of, se of sensing at the edge um, will, will really become much more important. Uh, it'll be facilitated through artificial intelligence, through machine-based learning, through automation. And, and humans will still be in the loop. Humans will still be uh, asked to make decisions, but I think they're gonna have to become analytically much more literate and uh, uh, also to be able to uh, understand data and, and respond to data that's presented to them very quickly. And, and I think all of this is, is some kind of wrapped up in what this digital future will, will look like at some point. Are there any other recommendations you would like to offer that organizations can follow in their pursuit of supply chain immunity? Well, I, I think that, you know, this we're seeing overall uh, uh, an overall trend. Um, we have a new book coming out called, called Flow, How Supply Chains Thrive. And I think the natural flow, if you will, uh, of what's happening in supply chains is we are moving towards, as I said, these more localized regional supply chains. Um, and, and so I think the, the question will come about how do we, uh, you know, how do we put in policies to support uh, entrepreneurs from uh, beginning to, um, you know, reopen these manufacturing back locally? And uh, how do we support that? And, and I think it'll create jobs. 
but I think there's also the issue of, of immigration policies that may come into play. You know, or do we have enough workers to staff all these jobs? And, you know, will we have um, uh, policies that will allow people to, to come to the U.S. and work in these factories if we don't have enough domestic uh, workers? So th there's some really interesting policy issues that all of these uh, all of these recommendations sort of weave together. And um, I believe it's going to be an interesting time. I, I, think, I think we're going to see some major shifts uh, in the supply chain. And I also believe that as we get more visibility and we apply some of these technologies, uh, I think our supply chains will shrink. I think they'll get faster. Uh, we'll see uh, increased flow, increased velocity of material in these supply chains. People will be acting more quickly. Uh, some of the jobs around planning will be done by uh, automation, not by Excel spreadsheets in the future. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of change ahead, and, and uh, we've only just seen the beginning of it. Rob, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and insight. And more importantly, thanks for contributing to the IBM Center Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. Thanks again. No, it's really good. My pleasure. You had some great questions. Really enjoyed the discussion with you, Michael. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations with Dr. Robert Hanfield, contributor to the IBM Center Special Report, COVID-19 and its Impact. You can download this and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.